0: We are now going to dive into uh, the service. We're going to begin by having Doug Freiberg come up and read for us. We're going to be reading in Judges if you want to come on forward. Uh, Today starts our new series in Judges, and so Doug's going to kick this off by reading a few verses from that, and uh, then we'll dive in as Pastor Aaron unpacks a lot of scripture for us today.
1: Thanks, Travis. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place, Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord.
0: Thanks, Pastor Doug. Good morning, Sound City. How are we doing? We good? I was kind of, I kind of sounded frozen if I uh, was giving you my honest opinion. Sounded a little chilly. Uh, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Sound City. If we've not yet had a chance to meet, really glad to have you with us today. Um, as Pastor Travis mentioned a minute ago, we are starting today uh, about a five-month trek through the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is an Old Testament historical book. The, the book of Judges is a, a fairly intense book, and we'll get into a little bit more of that in just a minute. But here's, here's why I believe that God has led us toward this book at this time, uh, in this season as a church. The, the book of Judges is full of um, examples of... Uh, What happens when God's people don't remain ultimately faithful to God, but instead uh, given to cultural pressure uh, to compromise their values, to compromise their beliefs, to worship other things, other gods besides the one true God. And uh, I I don't think it's any stretch to say that in our day and age, uh, in our uh, 21st century United States of America, Christians face new challenges and new pressures from the surrounding culture. And, and, And my hope and my heart is that God would use our study of this book to help us remain faithful to. Jesus, despite any pressures that come our way. Amen? The other thing is uh, the book of Judges, if I could just uh, put it kind of bluntly, the book of Judges has some real head-scratching sort of moments in it. You look at these stories, you think, what in the world is going on? I actually had people this morning, even before the first service started, say, I read through that passage. I don't even know how you're going to get a sermon out of that. And I said, well, I felt that way on like Tuesday as well. Um, but, but here's the thing, we believe that all of God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit and it's profitable for us. It's useful. God wants to use it in our lives. And so my hope and my prayer is that God would use our study of the book of Judges to, to help his word come to life in our hearts and in our minds, okay? So those are the two things that I'm praying, that we would see new things in God's word and that we would, as a people, be more faithful to Jesus than ever before. And so I ask you, Sound City, will you join me in those prayers as we dive into Judges? Will you? Okay. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to pray. We're going to tackle over an entire chapter worth of scripture. So I'm hoping to have you out of here before services next weekend. Let's do this. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. Two hours tops. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which is given to us by your grace. God, you're a a good and a gracious God. I know for myself, uh, I am prone to wander and I'm prone to forget the good things that you have done for me, for your people. And so God, we have this written word, this this word that, that is life to us. It's food to us. It's, it's nourishment for us. And so God, I ask and I pray today that we would come to your word and we would seek to learn and to grow, to have soft and teachable hearts. And God, I ask and pray that you would guard my lips and help me to teach only that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, would you bring these words to life in our hearts and in our minds now, by the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for this time. We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Okay, I uh, start with kind of a weird illustration, but how many of you have ever been to one of those restaurants where they have something like a 10-pound cheeseburger, and they're like, if you can eat the whole thing in one hour, you get it for free? And I'm like, wow, you're so generous. Uh, you're going to give me four days of indigestion for free? That's amazing. Has anyone, I need just. I need an honest person. Has anyone ever done one of those challenges? Raise your hand. Okay, Hector, I didn't know. And Trevor. Okay, two guys in my community group. We've got something to talk about tomorrow. <laughs> and their wives are both hanging their heads in shame. Um I've never done that because I've never wanted to just go all in. I, I feel like it's not only that hour that you have to eat, but it really is the next 48 hours of digestion. You have to go completely all in. And that's and, and kind of one of those things, like you don't just do that half-heartedly. If you start it, but you don't have a will to finish it, you're going to end up both miserable and paying the $40 because you're not going to get it for free and you just ate half of their 10-pound cheeseburger. That's a weird analogy, I know, but it relates to the passage today because what we're going to see is we're going to see the first example of many of God's people during this period of history not going all in in their pursuit of God, in their obedience of God. They're they're going to only partially obey. They're going to give a half-hearted attempt at obedience, and really what we're going to see, the the big idea for today is this, that, that partial obedience isn't really obedience at all. And, and partial spirituality actually does more harm than good. We're also going to see some good news that, that Jesus, through his perfect obedience, he paid the price for our disobedience. So that's what we're going to see. We're going to dive in to the book of Judges. We're going to see uh, some pretty interesting stories, even here in these first pages. Let me do just a little bit of context and a little bit of setup um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time unpacking the structure of the book and the, the history behind it um, because I really want to get to the meat of the text today. Let me just say this. If you go to our website, we've put up a bunch of different resources, some books, some audio lectures from a, sem- a seminary, and actually there's a video from a group called The Bible Project. They have done these really helpful overview videos of almost every book of the Bible. We've linked to it on our website, put it up on Facebook. You can find it easily. Would really encourage you to go watch that video, and make sure you're as familiar as possible with the overall content of the book of Judges. But let me just give a little bit today so we know um, what we're doing. The first thing I want to say about the book of Judges is this. It's a historical book. It's a historical book, and you might say, okay, well, that's kind of obvious, but it's a really, really important historical book. If you take the time period from Abraham to the time period of the end of the Old Testament story, so you take that whole period of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, the book of Judges is almost 25%. It spans almost 400 years worth of history. That's a massive chunk of time. That's a significant period in the life of the people of God. And it recounts the time after the people of Israel came into the promised land. You guys remember the story of the Old Testament, the picking up where where the the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt— God raised up a leader named Moses. Moses led them out of Egypt. He started leading them toward the promised land. The people, uh, they had some doubts. They had some cold feet. God says, well, why don't you take 40 laps in the wilderness for, for a little while here? And so they, they did. That generation that had doubted died off. A new generation raised up. God, God put the new leader, Joshua, in place. He took over for Moses. And Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and Joshua led the people on these great conquests. They're, they're getting to go into their land. They get to go into their home that God had promised. God said, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and we're going to have this land, and we're going to be together, and it's all going really well. The book of Joshua is kind of an upward trajectory, and then you turn the page into the book of Judges, and you think it might just get to be more of the same, but unfortunately, it's a very downward trajectory. So it's an important historical book. The second thing about the book of Judges is it is a violent and scandalous book. Um, There are things in the book of Judges that would make the writers of Game of Thrones blush, if that's even possible. Um, there are certain weeks, and I'll, I'll do my very best to kind of let you know through the weekly emails and, and, and stuff, there'll be certain weeks where we're going to address subject matter that those of you who bring your older children in, you may or may not want to have them with you, or at least you just want to be prepared for some interesting conversations that afternoon. But it's a violent book, and it's a scandalous book, and it's a really raw and honest book. It it gives us an unflinching look at what happens when God's people compromise and don't follow him wholeheartedly. It's also a very colorful book. There's a lot of stories, you know, Gideon and Samson and Deborah and these, these kind of colorful characters. Even people who don't regularly read the Bible or go to church are familiar with some of these stories, uh, and so from that angle, I think it's a, a good one for you to actually be able to invite people to, to come to church to hear uh, some of these stories and to interact with uh, what Jesus might have to say about it. And then the third thing about the book of Judges is it is a cyclical book. It goes in a cycle. We've got a bit of a prologue here this week and next. At the end, there's a couple weeks of epilogue. But in the middle, the book of Judges really is kind of this downward spiral, and even you can even see it illustrated in, in this cycle where it says that the people of God worshipped false gods. They worshipped idols. God allowed them then, under his loving discipline, to be subjected to oppressors. Other countries, other nations, other people, groups would come in, take them over. The people would realize what they've done. They would cry out to the Lord. He would raise up a judge. He would raise up a deliverer that deliverer would then fight against the enemies and the people would be rescued and they would have a period of peace and then it would just start all over again. And you actually see the downward spiral in at the beginning of the book of Judges. These judges, they lead big groups of people. You know, four tribes go with the judge. Two tribes go with the judge. Gideon leads 300 people. Samson is just by himself. And even, he doesn't even want to really be there too. <laughs> It's just this downward spiral. There are fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer people who are willing to follow God to do what he is asking. And by the way, speaking of judges, when we're talking about judges, you should not have this image in your mind when we're talking about judges, okay? <laughs> um, you should not, or, nor should you have this next image when we're talking about judges. I actually, I like this picture because This looks like an outtake. Like everyone is looking like Scalia was not ready for that photo to be taken. Ms. Ginsburg does not look like she wants to be in the photo at all. Uh, And nobody was communicating between like Alito and I think that's Kennedy, like where to look. I mean, this is everyone did what was right in their own eyes, actually, by the way. But when we think of the word judges, we often think of somebody very serious, somebody very somber, long black robes, a hammer, and they're sitting there kind of presiding in a legal sort of a sense. When the book of Judges uses that term, that's not really what we're talking about. You actually should think more of a military leader or a tribal chieftain, if you will. This is a, a, a Bronze Age society, bronze turning into the Iron Age. And, and these are leaders, military leaders of, of groups of people who are actually uh, much more militarily involved in our image of judges. There is one, actually Deborah is one who uh, sits and rules and presides and judges um, over God's people. But by and large, this is it's much more militaristic. So with that said, let's go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and let's just dive in and get right to work. I'm going to kind of just go through the text. I'm going to draw out some kind of important things for us to see as we go. Uh, throughout. And so if you're a note taker, uh, follow along, take notes. If you like to get the the outline off of the website, you can do so and follow along. Verse one, it says, after the death of Joshua. Okay, so right now here's the context. We've turned the page. Joshua led the people into the promised land, but Joshua dies. And it sends the nation of Israel into a leadership crisis. Who's going to lead? Who's going to be our ruler? Who's going to lead us in these battles? The people of Israel inquired of the Lord. That right there is the high point of the book of Judges. They prayed and asked God, who should lead? Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Judah is one of the tribes. Judah is the tribe that God said the king is going to come from the tribe of Judah. So Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Judah and, and, and Simeon, these two tribes, hey, let's help each other out. You come fight our battles with us. We'll come fight battles with you. This is all good. They're, they're to remove the people from the land so that they can live there like God said. So Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Parasites into their hands and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Now that brings me to the first point and something that is incredibly important and we don't want to miss, and it's this. God is the one who is sovereign over all things, including human affairs. So notice that Judah and Simeon, they're the ones that went into battle. Judah and Simeon went into war. They went into battle. They conquered the enemies. They're working together. They've got a plan. But who does the author of Judges give the credit to? The Lord. The Lord is the one that actually gave that battle to them. The Lord is the one who actually gave them that victory. One of the things that's so important for us to remember is that God is sovereign over all things, including our human affairs. There are going to be many times throughout the the pages of Judges where you might be tempted to look and say, where is God in this story? There are times in our lives, there's times in our country where we look at things, where is God? Is he really in charge? Things seem like they're so broken and messed up and chaotic. But the Bible would tell us that God is, is intimately involved in sovereignly orchestrating all things toward his plan. Let me just give you a few. I could overwhelm you, but I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to. I'll just give you a few. Hebrews 1.3 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You guys remember that when we studied Hebrews? So if you call in sick and you're like, oh, everything's gonna fall apart when I'm not there, maybe a little bit, Jesus upholds the universe When he says stop, the moon stops orbiting, right? That's a different level of of power. That's a different level of importance. So if your world falls apart, rest easy. Jesus is sovereign over all things. Ephesians 1 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Meaning God has a plan and all things, it's not just a Christian cliche or a bumper sticker, but all things are going to work together for the ultimate plan of God. If you look in the Old Testament, in Psalm 135, the psalmist says whatever the Lord pleases, he does. He's even sovereign over the weather. Gives him credit for making the clouds and the rain and the thunder and the lightning come. Or Isaiah 46, he says that that God is speaking. He says, I know the ends from the beginning. You and I, in in our human perspective, we know very little. We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. We, we barely have this little part of our path lighted, do we? But, but God actually is up above all of that. He sees the ends from the beginning. He knows all things, and he's not surprised. Daniel 2, 21. Speaking of kings and rulers, we're talking about a leadership crisis here in Judges. Who's going to lead us? Who's going to be in charge? Daniel 2, says that he, God, removes kings and sets up kings Daniel four seventeen says, The Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And Proverbs twenty one one says that the heart of a king is like a river of water, and the Lord turns that stream of water wherever he wants to. So even in politics, God is sovereign. I don't mean to get political and I don't necessarily, I'm not asking for your opinion of the most recent election, but the one thing that we cannot say as Bible-believing Christians is somehow this surprised God. As one of my pastors that I used to serve under said, the Trinity never meets in emergency session. The father looking at the son and the son looks what happened? Did you know this? I didn't know this was going to happen. What do we do? This is crazy. Oh my goodness. No, God is sovereign over all things, including Kings, kingdoms, and rulers. So when we look at the book of Judges, we need to understand that God is sovereignly orchestrating things. And and listen, no, we are not robots. We do have responsibility. We do have choice to make. No, uh, we're not just, well, I can't, I'm not responsible for my actions. God's sovereign. No, you are responsible for your choices, and especially for those sinful things that you do. But we have to understand that there is nothing that happens in the world that is outside of God's sovereign rule. Continuing on, verse five. We'll be here all day. That's only four verses. Let's keep going. <clears throat> verse five. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek. So Adonai Bezek is probably not a name, it's a title, it means the Lord or the master of Bezek. He's in of all places, Bezek. And they went up against him, they fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. We're six verses in. We've already got kind of our first cringeworthy moment in the book of Judges. Now, Adonai Bezek said, you know, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. This is, yeah, this is what I used to do. I used to go around, I'd conquer other kings, I'd conquer other people. I'd cut off their thumbs and big toes and they served under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Um, it's interesting, the king kind of understands what we might call poetic justice or sowing and reaping, or probably more likely from a pagan sense, he's just probably thinking of karma. Yeah, Goes around, comes around, got what I deserve. But what's really interesting about this passage is this is not the behavior of God's people, is it? Here, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Simeon have taken, they've adapted what this brutal pagan king has done, and they've said, this is what we're going to do. It's an interesting time period. I mean, this is a, this is a brutal era just in human history, much less in, in the history of Israel, there's, a, there's a, an Assyrian king, Asher Nasserpal II. I uh, was doing some study this week. I came across the quotation that he himself, he's bragging. Uh, this is around the same time period, a little bit later, 800 BC, but around the same time. He says this, "'In strife and conflict "'I besieged and conquered the city. "'I felled 3,000 of their fighting men "'with the sword.'" I carried off prisoners, possessions, oxen, and cattle from them. I burnt many captives from them. I captured many troops alive. From some, I cut off their arms and hands. From others, I cut off their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of heads, and I hung their heads on trees around the city." This is what is just going on in culture in the time. This is just what's known in the wider world. Now, God gave his people instruction to remove the people from the land. One of the things, I don't have time to fully address it today. Uh, I will address it further on as we go in. And I'm hoping to, I'm kind of working on an extended blog post to explain why it is that God would ask his people to completely drive the people out of the land But one of the reasons is it was God's judgment upon such type of wickedness that's happening in the world. There's some real evil happening. There's some real wickedness happening in the world, and God is using his people not only to give them a home, to give them a land, but also to execute judgment against tremendous evil, against things like ritual temple prostitution and child sacrifice, which were the norm in the area. And we're not, but 10 verses in, and we see the people of God adopting and adapting the pagan practices for themselves. Which leads me to my second point God's people are to live differently than the surrounding world. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, when God first calls his people out of Egypt, he says, You are my people. I've called you by name. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I actually like in the passage, it's in Deuteronomy 7. He says, it's not because you're so special that I loved you. I just loved you. You're not that great. You're not that special. I've just chosen to put my love on you and I want you to live differently. He says, you need to pay careful attention to follow the statutes and the rules that I set before you this day. Or if you go into the New Testament, John 15, Jesus says things like, you're not of this world just like I'm not of this world. He says, in fact, the world is going to hate you because you're not of this world. How many of you know that we, as God's people, are called to live differently? And how many of you could honestly say, look through your life, look through your practices, your beliefs, I haven't compromised anywhere. I only live in a called out sort of way. I never adopt the, 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 the sinful practices of the, the culture around me. Hmm. Can we be honest for a minute? This isn't just a God's people's problem in 1000 BC. This is a God's people problem throughout all eras of human history, isn't it? The pressure to adapt, the pressure to conform, the pressure to act like the surrounding culture instead of being faithful to God above all else. God's people are to live differently. Amen? Verse eight says, the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem. Oh, we see the city of Jerusalem. That's an important city in the story. They captured it. They struck it with the edge of the sword. They set it on fire. Afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. They're giving all these little historical details. The, the, the thing that's so interesting is you can go to these places. This is not mythology. This is history. This is uh, stuff that really happened. And they defeated uh, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. Okay, so we're so far so good, right? The reader, you know, they just, finished, they just finished reading the book of Joshua. Oh, we're winning the battles. We're taking the land. We flip the pages. Oh, that's kind of weird about the whole thumbs and big toes. Thing. Oh, but we're still winning battles. This is going good. More victories. We get one more good story here. Verse 11. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-sephir. And Caleb said, pause. Who's Caleb? Remember Caleb. Joshua and Caleb, remember when when Moses sent the 12 spies to spy out the promised land? 10 of them came back and said, guys, this is really bad. They got giants, they got big walls, they're going to crush us. There were only two men that had faith, Joshua and Caleb. They came back, they said, no. Yeah, they got big walls and big dudes, but God's bigger, so let's do this. Only two spies that had faith. Joshua has died. Caleb is very likely an, an old man at this point. But he's still faithful to God. He says, hey, I'm going, a, I'm going to put out a notice here. Anybody who wants to attack Kiriath-sephir and capture it, I'll give him um, Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. A little motivation. Come on, I need somebody brave. Who's going to go take on this land? His young daughter, she'll, she'll be your wife. So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So this would be his like, distant relative, possibly nephew. But, but Othniel says, we're going to study more about him in two weeks. He says, I'll do it. I'll go. Othniel comes from good stock. So he went and he captured it. And so Caleb gave him Oxa, his daughter, for a wife. Now, here's, I love this part of the story. When she came to him, came to Othniel, she said, Hey, ask my father for a field. You really need to get a field out of the deal. Yeah, you got me, but let's, he's got land. You need to get some land out of this. Now, notice what doesn't happen. Othniel does not go and ask for a field. It says, it just kind of skips forward in the story. She dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said, hey, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. This is just a surprising kind of out of left field story, but it's a beautiful picture of a strong, determined, smart woman who in a patriarchal society where women weren't really ever allowed to own land, she goes, no, I want some land. What? No, and I want the good land too, with the water, you know, with the springs in it. And it's like, okay, sounds good. I just love that story. Like she asks Othniel to do it. You don't really get the sense that he's being passive or lazy. He's presented as a good guy. She goes, actually, "Never mind, I'll do it. It's just awesome. I don't even know. uh, That's like a total side point. I don't have a big point on that. I just think it's great. Because God works through men and through women, who are faithful to him. Amen? And let me just say this as an encouragement to the ladies who are here today. Yes, the book of Judges is kind of stereotypically masculine, a lot of battles, a lot of warfare, but there are some wonderful portraits of women portrayed throughout this book. And as a side note, um, I haven't said this as much lately, we're going to pause at some point during Judges, and we're going to do the book of Ruth as well, because Ruth happens during the time of the Judges, so we'll get to see how that fits together. So, like one mega series. Keeping going in verse 16. It says, And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah and from the city of Palms, uh, bonus points, where's the city of Palms? Jerusalem? Huh? California. California. Yeah, Palm Springs, no. <laughs> Somebody in the first service said Orlando, so no. The city of Palms is actually Jericho. So they're going to Jericho, they're, they're going from the city of Jericho into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. These, these Kenites, um, if you go back again in the Old Testament, Moses married a woman who was not an Israelite. She was not a Jew. And her whole family kind of just adopted in with the people of God. And So these Kenites, they're, they're not Jews, but they're adopted into the family. And they get to enjoy the blessings right along with God's people. It's kind of a beautiful picture of God's heart to include people from every nation and tribe and tongue in his family. Verse 17, Judah went with Simeon, his brother. They defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthah, devoted it to a destruction. So the name of the city was Horma. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So far, so good, right? More victories, more battles. We're enjoying the blessings. It's all good. Verse 19 is where things really start to fall apart. The Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but... Those types of words, uh, you know, those but or, or those sorts of words, you you highlight those, you circle those. That's a big, important hinge word right there. But he, Judah, could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, the flat areas, because they had chariots of, what's the word, Sound City? Iron. Iron chariots. That's superior technology. Um, It's unlikely that the chariots were wholly made out of iron, but then they had like iron plating, they were stronger, they were tougher, the wheels maybe were made of iron or reinforced, they didn't break. I mean, this is some superior technology right here. So they, they took possession of the hills, but down in the flat parts where the chariots were, they couldn't, they couldn't do that. They couldn't take them over. Verse 20 and Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. Ooh, that's impressive. Anak is a, is a well-known giant, and his descendants was an offspring of giants, possibly even where Goliath, the great giant, comes from, descends from. So that's good. We beat the three sons of Anak, right? The people of Benjamin, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, and so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So what's going on here? What's going on? This is a little bit of a hinge. It's a little bit of a turn. Some good. Does this kind of read like, um, like, a, like, almost like making an excuse? Well, hey, yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't deal with those people down the plains. I had chariots of iron for crying out loud, but we did. We took over the hills. And yeah, I know the Benjamites didn't really get rid of the, the Jebusites out of our land, but it, but it's okay. Like we, we did pretty good. We went most of the way. Here's what I would say to you. There's that little bit of an excuse put in there. Well, they had chariots of iron. Do you know what's funny? If you look back in Joshua chapter 17, you go back when God said, hey, we're gonna go in, you're gonna take over the land. And God even says specifically that it doesn't matter if they have chariots of iron because I'm gonna win the battles for you. Do you know what's happening here? The people of Israel are relying on their own strength instead of trusting in God's. From a human perspective, how could we defeat them? They've got superior military technology. And God said, I didn't say you were going to do it. I didn't say you were going to be the ones by the, by the strength of your hands. said, I'm going to be the one that defeats the enemies for you as you trust in me. So that's the third point I want you to see is this. God's people are to rely on God's strength and not their own. God's people are to rely on God's strength and not their own. You know, sometimes, um, sometimes there's this cliche that'll go around, um, especially when people are hurting or going through a difficult time period. People walk up to him and say, well, you know, I know it's a lot. I know there's a lot of challenges and struggles going on, but God won't give you more than you can handle. May I respectfully ask, don't ever say that to someone. Because let me submit to you that all of life is more than we can handle. Our sin is more than we can handle. Our desperate need for God, whether we're aware of it or not, is pervasive. Had a conversation recently with someone who had just uh, fallen into some sin and just kind of recognizing some patterns in their life and they just were broken before the Lord and they were weeping and they were crying. Like, man, I just, I forget how much I need God and I'm only seeing like this much of it. God knows all the rest of it. Like, man, if, if we could ever have those experiences where God lets us see our desperate need, how, just how many of you, quick show of hands, how many of you ever had one of those situations in your life where you just came to the end of yourself, you're like, I need God, okay? If you've never experienced this, I, I know this might sound like a kind of a mean thing to pray, but I hope and pray that you have one of those experiences with God because one of the greatest tragedies for you as a Christian, could be that you go through your whole life feeling like you've got enough strength on your own to live when the reality is is we are desperately in need of God's strength each and every day, amen? Pastor and author Tim Keller says this in his commentary on the book of Judges. He said, it's not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessings or from worshiping God wholeheartedly. It is our lack of faith in his strength When we rely on ourselves and base our walk with God on our own calculations, instead of simply obeying, we find ourselves making decisions like the Judaites, like the people of Israel. Verse 22, continuing on, "'The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out this city of Bethel, and the name of the city was formerly Luz. It was called Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, "'Hey, hey, show us the way into the city.'" and we will deal kindly with you. That phrase has been said before when some other people were trying to spy out a city. Remember back in the book of Joshua, when the spies went into the city of of Jericho, they said to Rahab, hey Rahab, the the, the prostitute, say, will you help us spy out the city and then we'll deal kindly with you? And he showed them the way into the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family all go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. So they took over the city that used to be called Luz. He left and went and built a new city called Luz. And that is its name to this day. Listen, they're trying to take over cities. And when you go and you take over a city, but the people leave and go start a new city, now you're just playing a really bad game of whack-a-mole. You're you're like it's like it's like you just drove 75 yards and got a touchdown, but then on the very next drive you give up a 99-yard touchdown drive. Sorry, too soon, Seahawks fans. I Apologize. A little sensitive. You're you're not going to win that way. You're not going to have a good conquest that way. It's like they're kind of trying to capture the old magic. They're trying to do it the way they did it before. The difference was, is Rahab and all of her family was adopted into the family of God, but this guy they just kind of let him go, and he starts another new city right in the middle of while they're trying to conquer these other cities partial obedience. It's, it's half-hearted follow-through. And that leads us to the end of the chapter, which is just a lot of verses of a really long, sad report. I'm going to read these quickly. A, because it's just long and sad, but B, because there's a lot of names I'm not quite sure how to pronounce. So verse 27, Manasseh, that's another one of the tribe's did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean or its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, get this, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. So instead of obeying what God said to do, they said, well, it's okay. We'll let you live here. You just get to be our slaves. Again, this is not the behavior of the people of God. Ephraim, another tribe, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun, another tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor, more slavery. Asher, another tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants of Acho or the inhabitants of Sidon or Ahlab or Aqsab or Helbo or Aphek or Rahab, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for so they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemet or the inhabitants of Beth-Anath. So they lived among them, uh, the Canaanites, and the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth-Shemeth and of Beth-Anath became subject to forced labor over and over and over again. They're not driving the people out. They're just making them into slaves. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. So the people of Dan, another tribe, they were supposed to take over the hills and the plains, but they've only got the hill country. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres and in ijalon and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily upon them and they became subject to forced labor and the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. It's a mess. It's a total mess. If this were modern military conflict, uh, the, 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 the news media and the pundits would be calling for the, the, you know, the generals and the people in charge to be replaced. This is just not going well. Nobody is following through on what they're supposed to do. And there's not a lot of reasons given in there. It's just kind of like, well, it just kind of didn't happen. Or we couldn't do it. The chariot of iron thing. Or, well, we let that one guy go. But he gave us the rest of the city. There's all these compromises being made along the way. Now, chapter 2, God shows up, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of God shows up and gives his assessment of the situation. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. Listen to what God says I I did this. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I I made a promise, guys. Have I I backed down on my promise? Did I fail you in any way? No, I delivered you. I brought you to this land. I said I will never break my covenant with you. God says I'm going to love you with a perfect, never-ending, an unbreakable type of love. And I said for you to not make any covenants with the inhabitants of this land. And you need to break down their altars. You need to not participate in their pagan worship, their false gods, their child sacrifice. Don't go along with what they're doing. But God says, you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods, their idols, will be snares to you. They're gonna catch you up. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted their voices and wept and they named the name of that place Bochim, which, which means weepers or those, those who are just broken and weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. You know, in that last section, we're kind of left wondering, well, why couldn't they take over? What's this big laundry list of things that they, they couldn't take over and they couldn't do? And God clearly says, it's because You've compromised. It's because you didn't obey my voice. You didn't follow the plan that I gave to you. You didn't drive the people out. You worshiped their gods. There's idolatry that's happening here. God's assessment of the situation is that their obedience was only partial, which is the fourth and final lesson I want you to see from this passage today, that partial obedience is not really obedience. Partial obedience is not really obedience. Uh we have a few of you who are our parents here. Uh, just a handful. Uh, I've seen the kids' ministry attendance numbers. Any of you ever given one of your children an instruction? Hey, I need you to clean this room. One of two things happens. Kid goes running off into the other room. There's like 30 things are messy on the floor or whatever and you walk in, you know, 10, 15 minutes later you come in and there's like 31 things on the floor now all of a sudden or no, maybe, maybe 26. Like, well, wait a minute. Like, I, I thought I asked you to clean the room. Like, well, I did. Kind of, kind of, sort of. I mean, again, this is not my family. Uh, I've just heard of these things happening in some families. Anybody ever experienced that? Partial obedience. Like, well, that's not, you didn't really do what I asked you to do. You did part of it. You didn't do what I asked you to do. Or even better, hey, I need you to, I need you to go in the other room and clean, the other, clean that room up, okay? Oh, okay, right? Again, things I've read about happening in families with kids. I would submit to you, whether you're six or 86, there are some things that we really struggle to grow out of. When it comes to obeying God our Father, sometimes we obey him partially or we obey him half-heartedly. I guess, God, if I have to. Tim Keller, again, in his commentary says this. He says, halfway discipleship is an unstable compound. It cannot last. Either all our life is given to God in grateful, loving obedience, or none is. Part obedience, as we'll see, tends toward non-obedience. The more partial obedience you give place to, the more it leans towards non-obedience. That's really what we're going to see in the book of Judges. Gary Inrig, another author who wrote a really helpful book on the book of Judges, he says this, the most miserable people in the world are professing believers who will not commit themselves to the Lord. Rather than experiencing the best of both worlds, they have the worst. That was true in the time of the Judges, and it is true today. You only go half in on that 10-pound cheeseburger, you got to pay the 50 bucks and you have indigestion. You're not going to go all in with God. Well, then you understand that you're tasting of the destruction of the world and you're not really experiencing the blessings that come from walking in obedience to God. Now, at this point, it might be easy for us, separated by thousands of years and by thousands of miles, to look at the people of Israel in this chapter and say, what in the world is wrong with you? Why didn't you just obey God? Why didn't you just trust his plan? Why didn't you just do what he said to do? Why are you guys doing all this partial obedience? What, What is wrong with you? But friends, might I submit to you that there is a lot more of us in these Israelites than we might care to admit. Any of you ever partially obeyed God? Any of you ever had like, you know, the clearly written word of God that says, yes, do this, no, don't do that. And you're like, well, I like that one part, but not that other one so much. By the way, sin is not just sinful things that we do. The book of James says, if you know something good that you're supposed to do and don't do it, that's also sin. So any of you ever had God tell you to do something, to follow through on something? You're like, yeah, maybe later, I don't know. That attitude of, oh, I guess if I have to, God. What if a book, what if a really honest book was written about your life? What if, what if a book that was as brutally honest as the book of Judges was written about your life? What partial obedience, halfway obedience would be part of the story? Friends, the bad news is each and every single one of us, we failed to obey God. The bad news is that we corporately, as humanity, have failed to live up to our purpose. God created humanity to be stewards over the whole earth, to care for it, to safeguard it, to protect it, to love it. And and our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose rebellion against God. And every single person who's been born since has been born with this sinful nature where we always tend towards partial or non-obedience. I just want to let this weight sit for a minute. How many of you have a relationship where you know you've wronged another person, but you have not gone back to them to reconcile? How many of you have something that God's called you to, a ministry, an act of service, a place of engagement, and and you're just kind of, well, I'm waiting for for time to be right? How many of you have a friend who does not know Jesus, does not know his love and his grace, that you're supposed to speak of the gospel to, and you're just kind of, well, maybe, I don't know. Now, that's the bad news. If that's all we had, this would be one of the most depressing sermons I've ever preached. Probably the most depressing sermon I've ever preached. But friends, here's the good news. As gospel Christians, we know that partial obedience isn't the end of the story. Because there is one who came who, who lived a life of perfect obedience, who never said no to the will of the Father, who never stopped short of the totality of what God asked him to do. Friends, who are we talking about? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who, who came. Jesus is the one who uh, fulfilled every single requirement above and beyond what God's law even required, and he did it. Why? Why? so that we could be forgiven of our disobedience. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5, For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So friends... What the Bible says is that if you've trusted in Jesus, even though you have been disobedient, partially obedient, not obedient, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you through that lens. He sees you as righteous, even as obedient as Jesus himself. Is that good news for anybody this morning? That you are not looked at, you are not judged by God on the virtue of your own action and obedience, but by the virtue of Jesus' obedience. How obedient was he? Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, our disobedience deserves judgment. We should be the people in Judges chapter 2, where the angel of the Lord comes and says, Hey, you have not done what I've said, and now you're going to experience the consequences of it. But instead of God's judgment, we receive God's grace because Jesus died on the cross and he rose again and he's alive forevermore. We don't serve a dead religious founder. We serve a living savior. One who has the power to forgive, one who has the power to transform. Paul also says in Colossians 2 that Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, triumphed over them, and it says, put them to open shame. So where the Israelites failed to win the battles, where they failed to uh, drive out the enemies, Jesus has driven out our ultimate enemy, Satan, and we are not under his authority or rule anymore. Amen? That is such good news. And friends, let me submit to you this. You are not going to be more obedient by trying hard to be more obedient. You are not going to be more faithful. You're not going to be more wholehearted by really clenching your teeth and really gritting your knuckles and saying, all right, today's the day. I'm going to give it all to Jesus. You're just not. How many of you have found that works for like 20 minutes, 30 minutes tops, right? I remember when I was a little kid, my my mom let me buy uh, one of those wrist rocket slingshots, and she said to me, There's only one rule you're not allowed to shoot your brother. I'm like, oh, that's the only rule I can do that. I literally made it 11 minutes before I shot my brother and my mom took it away from me, okay? Maybe this is just my own sinful issues. Maybe you have much more self-control than I do. But the fact of the matter is we are not transformed to be obedient by trying to be obedient. We're transformed to be obedient by worshiping the one who was obedient on our behalf. His name is Jesus, friends. That's the good news, The book of Judges paints a bleak and honest picture, but when we look at Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, well, we have joy. We have opportunity to follow him with greater devotion, with greater obedience. I wonder if we could take a moment, even just right now, and pray. Because as I was speaking, I would guess that some of you have things coming to mind, things that God's asked you to cut out of your life, things that God's asking you to put into your life, And I want to just take a moment right now and pray and allow the Holy Spirit to even stir our hearts. Say, God, where do I need to follow you in greater obedience? And God, how can I focus not on trying harder myself, but on Jesus' perfect obedience and let that change me from the inside out? Would you pray with me, God? I ask and pray that right now you would stir in our hearts and you'd stir in our minds those things that you're asking us to do and places you're asking us to follow you. God, we want to come before you with a repentant heart. God, even some of us may need to weep before you. God, for ways that we have not done what you've asked us to do. And we've done things that you've asked us not to do. And God, I ask and pray for my friends right now that what they would experience is not guilt. It's not the burden of their sin, but God, they would experience your conviction, which always has hope. Your conviction always has hope because we know about Jesus and we know about the cross and we know about forgiveness and we know about Jesus' perfect obedience on our behalf. So God, may we be people who don't just clench our teeth and grit our, you know, squeeze our knuckles and just try harder, but God, would you help us to be people that lift our hands and our hearts in worship to Jesus and that as we do so, you would transform us from the inside out, making us more obedient day by day We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Friends, some of you are gonna need to respond this week. There's gonna be things that God's gonna ask you to do. I am praying for you to do so. And I would even go so far as say, before you leave today, let somebody know what it is that God's asking you to do and follow up. We're going to turn to a time of response now. We're going to respond as we do in a handful of ways. The first way we're going to respond is through giving of our tithes and offerings. If you're a guest or a visitor, uh, we don't want you to feel awkward like you have to give or anything. If if you want to join with us in this act of worship, you're welcome to do so. But possibly for some of you, this act of giving is one of those things that maybe God's been asking you to do and to to start uh, investing in uh, the ministry, the work of the ministry, the church that you're a part of. We welcome our younger students class in to join us here for this time of response as well. As they're collecting the offering, and then before they hand out the elements for communion in a moment here, uh, let me read some discussion questions and things uh, to get us talking here this week in our homes and in our community groups. First one is this. As we dive into the book of Judges, what questions do you have? What confused you? What intrigued you? What do you want to study or pursue more? Just by way of reminder, again, there's a lot of resources up on our website. I would encourage you to go look through that. Number two, if we could sit and interview the Israelites from this time, maybe they showed up at your community group, and you could ask them, hey, why didn't you follow through with what God asked you to do? What answers, read excuses might they give? And actually, the follow-up to that is, do any of them sound familiar in our own lives? Number three, where is God convicting and prompting you to follow through in wholehearted obedience? Where in your life is there partial obedience, friends? Let's just be honest with each other this week. And number four, how does Jesus' perfect obedience free us and empower us for greater obedience? A couple things to pray about as well. Pray that God would use these next few months in Judges to strengthen, equip, encourage, and challenge us as individuals and as a church. And then number two, pray that we would not be half-hearted in any way but that we would seek to pursue Jesus with greater obedience than ever before. The volunteers are gonna begin passing out the elements for communion. If you want to celebrate the Lord's table with us, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to do so. And this is where we're going to remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, his obedience on our behalf. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 to set the stage for what we're about to celebrate here. The apostle Paul writes that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, we're proclaiming here the perfect obedience of Jesus. Today, as you celebrate You say, this is not about my perfect obedience. This is about Jesus' perfect obedience. And there's an invitation to examine. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, this is an opportunity for you to look at your own life. No, there's nobody perfect here coming to the table. Nobody is going to come before God and say, God, thank you so much that I haven't sinned this week. In fact, if you come with that attitude, you just sin and you need to not take communion. <laughs> this is an opportunity for us to come and say, God, I haven't obeyed you wholeheartedly, but I want to thank you for your perfect obedience in my place. Help me, strengthen me, help me to follow you more wholeheartedly. The, the first song we're going to sing, the band is going to lead us in the time of singing. The first song Uh, it's called I Surrender All. It's an older hymn. And uh, I always, I remember my mom used to joke when she would lead this song, she'd say, you know, we actually really can't sing that song honestly. If we were honest, it'd be like, I surrender some. (laughs) A good day, I surrender most. So here's, here's what I'm inviting you to do. Don't sing this song today as some promise, like, God, I'm gonna do it perfect this week. As you sing I Surrender All, sing it as a prayer of faith that God, you're gonna work in me to transform me from the inside out to look more like Jesus. Sing this song today as a prayer of faith. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this time. God, I thank you for your perfect obedience, Lord Jesus, on our behalf. I ask and pray today that we would focus in on your obedience, that we would rejoice and celebrate in your obedience, and that God, as we do so, you would transform us. Help us, we pray. Keep us close to Jesus, in whose name we pray. And everyone said, amen.